This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to episode number 279 of Literary Treks. This is your official Star Trek books and comics podcast here on the Trek FM network. I am Bruce Gibson. I thank you so much for joining us. And I also thank Dan Gunther for joining me, because I cannot freaking do this show without him. Dan, thank you so much for being here. I really uh, am, as always, really happy to be here. And I would never leave you alone to do this show, so I'm glad I can be here to help out. <laughs> let's let's not imagine what the show would be like if it was just me. That would be a scary thing. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, don't bring that up, because I'm scared of how many people will write in and say, hey, that's a great idea. <laughs> Well, guess what, Dan? That probably will not happen. <laughs> um, so anyway, we have a feature, as always, and the feature is covering another new Star Trek novel. That's right. Within a month, we've gotten two Star Trek novels. So the last episode, we spoke with John Jackson Miller about Star Trek Discovery, The Enterprise War. This episode, we're speaking with Greg Cox. He hasn't been on the show in five years. I researched that today. But now he returns with his original series novel, The Antares Maelstrom. And so we'll have that in our feature. But before we do that, it's time to review a comic. And this is Star Trek Year 5, number 4. And I'm going to open up my comic right now so we can start talking about this. So... Number four, this is a lucky number for me, hmm. and that has no bearing on this review. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not saying I don't like this. It just has nothing to do with it. But anyway, so we find ourselves where we last left off with issue number three, where we're on the planet Sigma Iosha 2. And this is that planet, you know, with the gangsters, you know. Reading about the mobs of the Chicago. <laughs> you uh, got that there, uh, Spock? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Cracko, what's up? Well, I guess he didn't say what's up. But, anyway. <laughs> but we find out that Spock, well, first of all, you know, the planet is now more futuristic. It's more modern uh, because of all this 
information that was left behind on the communicator that McCoy left back on the planet, which again, to me is a little weird that the commuter ha- communicator has all this information that they can then build a society, a whole new society that's modernized with all this latest technology within like two, three, four years, however it, long that. It is. had like the Federation Wikipedia loaded into it somehow. So yes, <laughs> I mean, just imagine a Wikipedia, and you can rebuild your whole civilization in two years. So anyway, Spock <laughs> is running for not i don't know it's not governor but what he's running for some political office yeah basically the the president or the prime minister of the whole planet kind of thing yes which is a little odd but a lot of fun <laughs> so how would you like gives- to be spock's campaign manager like how do you manage that guy <laughs> we need you to be more jovial and you know kiss babies i will not <laughs> Well, what I really love about this is the poster that is on the cover where, you know, there's a poster of Spock saying, you know, it says vote for Spock and he's doing the whole, you know, pointing at you and it says idic forever. <laughs> I, I loved that kind of rejiggering of idic so that it meant infrastructure development, immediate concern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a lot of fun. Um so he's making a speech to the Ioceans. He's got Cracker there because the southern part of the planet's being ignored and the space station is about to crumble and people are going to die on there and no one's going to do anything about it. And really, Cracker is kind of the, the hero of this. He's trying to save people's lives and protects people. But then we have President Jamek, who is basically saying, you know, no, we're, we're, we're not going to do this. You know, advanced civilizations are born from the ashes of the unsophisticated. And so he feels like, you know, allowing these things to die away is the best interest of the planet. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And it, it's, it's telling that he's looking at earth history to say, well, your civilization is built on the backs of all these horrible tragedies. So we're just doing the same thing. And, it's it's a little bit of a splash of cold water in the face that like, yeah, that's how Earth history went. But, you know, you're cherry picking examples and, and the goal is to get past that, not to, you know, relive that kind of thing. Yes. And then we're back on the Enterprise. We have our captured childlike Tholian on there and we have someone, I guess, uh, I guess he's an engineering officer. Yeah, I mean, he's wearing a red shirt, but I assume maybe he's engineering, either that or security. But I think he's engineering. He's trying to sabotage things on the ship because he wants this Tholian dead and gone. He's really upset that there's a Tholian on the ship. And he's pointing his phaser at Scotty and Uhura and, and Sulu saying, you know, let me in here or let me get to it. And then Chekhov comes up behind him and shoots him shoots the phaser out of his hand but it also goes off and hits scotty who's in his protective what do you call that suit the that space suit from the the tholian web yeah yeah which is funny because it was you know tholian there huh. yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it has little effect on scotty he's like oh that's kind of weird the phaser Hardly did anything to me. But anyway, so we've got that storyline going on in this book. What So far so far at this point, which storyline are you favoring? Um, I'm actually, 
I'm, I'm interested with what's going on with the Tholian and that sort of thing, but I'm actually way more into the story on Sigma Yosha 2 than I was in the last issue. I feel like uh, the last issue we had some problems with kind of how that went, but you know, in retrospect, it feels like set up for what this story is, which I think is kind of a more interesting, uh, you know, last week we didn't have the foreknowledge that this is where they were going with the story. Um, but you know, now I'm like, Oh, okay. I see the story they're trying to tell here and uh, I'm really into it, but I'm also actually really enjoying the story on the enterprise as well. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I think I, you know, and I'm kind of jumping ahead towards the end, you know, so if you don't want to know, you know, stop listening, jump ahead or whatever, because we're we're going further into this issue. But Spock wins by 84 percent, which is weird, too, because we see earlier that 47 candidates are running. So mm-hmm. for him to beat out 46 candidates by 84 percent is pretty amazing. <laughs> it's only logical. <laughs> it is. And I don't know why they came up with the number 47. Hmm, yeah, I don't know. It's just from. kind of a random number, I guess. They yeah. just it pulled seems out to of pop up. Yeah, it pops up often for some <laughs> reason. But, you know, so Spock wins and then he presents, you know, these books, you know, a book about Frederick Douglass and the teachings of Surak and Plato, as these are supposed to be the new guides for the planets. And it makes sense because everything that happens on this planet is because of these books that they've read. But in a lot of ways, I would have liked to have seen Spock try to lead this planet for a while or do more as opposed to, okay, I won. Here are these books. Bye bye. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he does say, you know, it's against Starfleet regulations. I can't hold public office, yada, 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 which makes sense, you know. Um, So it's kind of cool that he has this influence on the society but yeah it would have been kind of neat to see spock take his what is it i think a three-week term or something like that as as leader of this planet yeah but yeah it definitely makes sense it just would have been cool to see that though Mm -hmm. so and then we find the tholian uhura has been trying to communicate with it and it responds to symbols yeah the fibonacci sequence the mathematical uh, sequence that uh, some people are familiar with. Um, that seems to kind of be the key to establishing this contact with the Tholian. And I really liked that. I love that that they've kind of made contact and made a connection of some kind here. So, I mean, really, that's the end of the issue. Um, so the storyline is wrapped up, but the Tholian is still on the ship. So the Tholian still going to have some play in future issues. So when we get to issue number five, we'll see what happens there. Mm-hmm. And we still haven't gotten to that moment where Kirk's on the bridge with somebody holding him at, at phaser point or gunpoint or whatever, uh, that apparently this is all leading to at some point. So that's kind of been in the back of my mind for this kind of wondering when we'll get to that pivotal moment. Yeah, that moment that we saw really at the beginning of issue one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, it may be until we have to get to the last issue of the series, because didn't we say this is going to be two years? I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know, maybe they're playing the really long game. That's entirely possible. I would be okay with that. That would be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. So anyway, that's issue number four. And again, these are these come out each month. So we'll cover number five next month. So that being said, let's go and look at our listener feedback. So we go into the Babel conference. 
This is about episode number 277, You're Meant to Be Confused. And we were talking in the feature about the Titan novel, Sword of Damocles. We got a lot of feedback. We're getting lots of feedback, as always. And uh, everybody's got a lot to say on this one. So we really don't have time to go through everybody's comments. But uh, just to make some highlights here, let's see. We have uh, Andrea Valentova. And she says that, first of all, she says hello and thank you for a great episode. You're so welcome. (laughs) But she says that she also found this book to be confusing. Now, English isn't her first language, so that has something to do with it. But you know what, Andrea? Even if English was your first language, I think you would be confused just like we were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was. uh, Yeah, that's definitely the case, I think. Uh, Jason Myers says that he hasn't read this since it came out and thinks this may have been where he joined the, uh, Titan series. Um, the one thing that he appreciated was, uh, bringing up the contest to design the ship. So I'm glad we kind of highlighted that because some people didn't realize that this was, uh, that, that design came from a fan, uh, design as well. And then we have Janessa Ciarda, and she says that she hasn't had a chance to listen to the podcast because she's just been like crazy busy, but that's okay. She's read this novel before, and uh, she says she remembers that she didn't like it, and then she read it a second time and still didn't like it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> With all the time jumping in everything, and she was just, you know, she's a mythology nerd and there's just some things that just rubbed her the wrong way. So I have a feeling, Janessa, you're not going to read this a third time. <laughs> I, yeah, I get, definitely get that impression. Uh, third time is not going to be the charm. Well, Oz Trekkie chimes in as well, uh, saying it's been a long time since he read this one. He's sad that they lost Jazza so into so early into Titan's journey. Uh, and actually only gives this novel three stars. So kind of a, a low ranking from Oz Trekkie, um, than, than what he's been typically ranking the novels we've covered. So definitely seems to be kind of a, a public opinion is not totally in favor of this novel. <laughs> and then we have Bob Smith who made a pretty lengthy comment in his post. I'm not going to read the whole thing, of course, but I encourage everyone to go back and read it because again confused he makes several good points in here about finding the novel to be confusing but then he says you know there's some positive things that he was never bored and he found the orishas to be you know that whole thing to be interesting so even though the plot was confusing he thinks the premise had potential and he liked the cover too which by the way is the first time we saw the titan mm-hmm uh, Liam Smith mentions that he has the Eagle Moss model of the Titan, uh, which I managed to get my hands on as well. So uh, that's really cool. I love that we're getting, you know, lit first stuff in the Eagle Moss models. And that model of the Titan is terrific. So Sean Taranjo's design, I, I love that it's gotten such staying power with the, uh, with, you know, the design of the Titan and the Eagle Moss models and all that stuff. And then Justin Ozer made a comment, but I don't think he listens to the show, so I don't really need to read this. So, no, I'm kidding, of course. But uh, he says that, yes, he was also confused and that he found that he was constantly distracted in the middle of the novel by trying to visualize what was happening, where and when, and in relation to what. So he gave it three out of five shattered places. Excellent. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, those are the comments. And just, you know, real quick, uh, there's a David Plummer's just talking about the Q&A novel and we show the cover. That's the 
check version where you see data on the cover when it's not supposed to be data in the novel. And I'm not going to get into that because it's a sore subject with me. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's a touchy <laughs> subject with Bruce. His, his, his temple vein is throbbing with this one. So we'll leave I that alone. I heard from Matt Rushing the other day. He was telling me what cover of a Star Trek novel that he didn't like. And I said, are you kidding? Have you seen Q&A? Have you seen this controversy going on? And anyway... <laughs> but uh, we got an email also from Dan Rupp, and Dan says, as far as the fear of discontinuity between post-Nemesis novels and the new Picard series, the novels came first. The movies and TV gave up on Picard. If anything should be non-canon, it should be the Picard series. Well, Dan, I'm going to tell you, if anybody at CBS is listening to this right now, it just fell on deaf ears. <laughs> they're like i don't care <laughs> yeah i i mean you know bluntly stated that's just not how canon works right i mean canon is the primary output of the rights holders which would be anything on television anything in the films and you know we love the novels but they you know we kind of know going in that at any time they could be overwritten by uh, what the rights holders decide to do with the characters or the situations uh, in the primary uh, mode of storytelling, which is canon, which is television and films. So, you know, if we want to talk about what came first, um, I guess the gold key comics should uh, overwrite everything that came after them. But uh, I, not quite how it's going to work uh, going forward, unfortunately or not. Uh, um, depending on where your opinion lies with that. As John Jackson Miller said, STLV recently that, you know, there's a multiverse in Star Trek. So maybe it could play out like that. But let me just say this to you, Dan Rupp. You can look at these novels as being first and as your prime universe and that what you see in Star Trek Picard is an alternate universe. It's a secondary universe. So the novels and I, Look, we can all go with this. The novels are the universe. Everything else that we get is those other secondary universes. How's that? <laughs> canon is, uh, yeah, canon is the purview of the people that own the rights. But what you consider to be in continuity, that's whatever you want it to be. So, yeah. yeah. Go for and it. seriously, though, the novels, <laughs> I hear things like, you know, well, only 10% of Star Trek fans read the novels. I don't know how accurate that is, but it's probably close, if not even a little less, maybe. But uh, so, the, yeah, they're not going to base series around continuity that people aren't familiar with. And they're not going to go back and read 20 novels to figure out what's been going on. So, But those novels all still exist and we all still love them. <laughs> they're still valid. 100% valid. And you know what's valid? This next new novel that we just recently got. Okay, here we are in the feature. And I just love this part of the show because we have our special guest here to talk about the Antares Maelstrom. And that is the author of this novel. And his name is Greg Cox. Greg, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Always happy to have you on, Greg. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Looking forward to it. So what's the last Star Trek novel you wrote before that? Because I feel like it's, it's been some time. Yeah. Uh, the, honestly, I was figuring it out the other night. My last book came out in 2016. And that was in, I remember that because it was in time for the big Star Trek 50th anniversary. And that was Captain the Captain, 
which was book one of the Legacies trilogy, which was this big trilogy we did in honor of Star Trek's 50th anniversary in 2016. So, oh my God, that's three years ago. So, so if I'm remembering correctly, are you the one then that named number one Una? Only with a footnote. Um, honestly, as I recall, because that was a trilogy, and that trilogy was written by four, by four of us. Right. As I recall, we came up with that name together. In fact, my memory is that Dave Mack came up with that name. However, because I'm the one who wrote book one, I was the one who ended up using it first. So, you know, offstage, Dave Mack, I believe that was Dave Mack's idea, but the name first appeared in Captain the Captain, which was book one of Legacies. But it was something, the four of us, me, Dave Mack, Kevin Dilmore, and, um, oh God, I'm having a moment. Oh, Dayton Ward, you know, cooked up together. We we all kind of decided that number one was going to be a major character. In fact, I remember I lobbied for this aggressively because I had already written one previous novel, Child of Two Worlds, it was about Pike and his crew. And after having basically written a 300-page book where I sort of avoided mentioning number one's name, it was like, we're not doing that again, and we're not going to be able to write a three-book trilogy, you know, dancing around what her name is. So for God's sakes, let's give her a name. And I think (laughs) Dave Mack proposed Una, and we went and ran with it. And I believe I'm not, and to my amazement, you know, they used it on the show. Yes. Yeah, that was, isn't that crazy? I've got a great, couple of great stories about that. In fact, I missed it because the line, it's tossed off in, in the middle of a rather busy action scene where, you know, there's red alert things flashing and the ship's under attack and things are shaking and there are explosions. And I honestly missed it. And then I started getting all these emails and calls from people saying, Greg, did you hear it? They said, Una, really, really, really? (laughs) And then I, this was confirmed by one of the producers afterwards. But the best part is I was at Shore Leave, which is a fan-run Star Trek convention, just a few weeks ago. Anson Mount, who plays Captain Pike, was there. And I actually went up to him and I said, excuse me, I have to ask you this, you know, get the answers straight from the captain. Did you call number one Una in the season finale? And he actually knew what I was talking about. He said, yeah, yeah, I, I was the scene where I call up and tell her she's got control of the bridge. Yeah, I, I, I said, yeah, I called her Una. So, bam, straight from Captain Pike's mouth, her name is Una. It is canon, and me, Dave, and Kevin, and, you know, Dayton can all claim, have a, had our own little, you know, Hikaru Sulu moment. Okay. exactly it felt like a hikaru solo moment you know that even felt like a bit of a victory for all of the fans of the books too it was kind of like a little we could all look at each other appreciatively and go oh yeah there we go (laughs) the books matter i could probably say now that i i I did not know they were going to do that although i was crossing my fingers because about a year ahead of time i had quietly gotten an email from some people involved in the show and say so what's the story with this number one character what have you guys established about her in the books and you know we were quietly asked about it you know no guarantee they were going to use it but you know wow that's amazing so, yeah i didn't catch it either when i first watched the episode it was dan it was like hey they used the name una <laughs> i was like what what well, I even the close, the close captioning person missed it they just rendered it as uh like they thought it was yes. like a grunt yeah, yep. and even I guess the the CBS All Access captions were different from the captions that we got here in Canada. Like they, I don't know if they just farm that out to some third party, but yeah, there was all these different 
versions of it out there. Yeah, I, I went back and checked the closed caption in, in, in the version at least we were getting here. He's, you know, he's calling up there and it, it's rendered as a grunt. <laughs> it's, I can't remember the dialogue, but, you know, you know, Captain to bridge. Mm. Una, I need you to take command or something. <laughs> right. But I think then one of the producers confirmed it was Una. And then, like I said, I got it straight from Anson Mount's mouth two weeks ago. So, and I'm not sure. I think maybe John Jackson Miller used Una in his most recent Discovery novel. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, he did. You're correct. Yeah. So it's a thing. She's Una. So she is Una. So that's great. So yeah, we've all these years we have an official name now. And don't think I'm not going to be dining out on that at conventions for years now. Okay, you know. <laughs> well, and I don't think you work the name in because her character is not in the novel, The Antares Maelstrom. So I don't think you have made a reference to the past of her. No, we, we, you, that name debuted in, book, in the Legacies trilogy. Right. So you haven't used it since. I have not used it since because, no, because... Uh, yeah, no, the entire Maelstrom is a five-year mission book involving Kirk, Spock, Chekhov, McCoy, and the usual cast from the TV show. There was no need to bring in number one. We brought in number one for the Legacies trilogy, honestly, because, again, that was the big 50th anniversary trilogy, and we wanted a callback to the cage. So let's bring in number one, you know, because that was a whole, let's salute to, salute to you know, 50 years of Star Trek thing. Yeah. Antares Maelstrom is more of, is, is a five-year mission book set during Kirk's historic five-year mission. So let's dig into that because the book does start off. And just so you know, Greg, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the book without any spoilers. And then we'll kind of give a spoiler alert as we get deeper into it. Cause we're going to go all the way through it. We're going to just like, <laughs> dig in. We're going to pick your brain all over the place here, but it starts off. There's this couple on this frontier planet. It's uh Balder three and they're mm-hmm. drilling for a new well for water and they strike pergeum and then this causes this whole gold rush of everybody. It's like an old fashioned Western. It feels like of all these ships rushing to the planet. Cause there's so much value in this mineral. And of course the enterprise is there to kind of just assist things and keep things, you know, in control of the stampede of prospectors and there's deep space station S eight there. So I was wondering, you know, how did you choose this kind of setup, this kind of storyline for the novel? Well, I think the vague idea, I I tend to sort of keep a file and folder full of ideas, which I'll get to eventually. I think the idea of doing, indeed, this book is very much, you know, a gold rush in space was at the back of my head for a while. And this is very, this this book is very much the Alaskan gold rush. It's California gold rush. It's, you know, oh my God, this obscure remote area out on the far frontier, suddenly prospects are swarming to strike a big and a lot of the ideas in that book, I actually, uh, I was going to say inspired, stole from real history. You know, the idea of turning ships into uh, houses and shops, the idea of a, walking ahead of myself, of a route through a dangerous area. You know, I was reading up on the Donner Party and the Gold Rush to just sort of feed my head. And that was sort of, you know, the idea in the back of my head was something I wanted to do to sort of embrace the whole final frontier idea. And Pergium, by the way, you know, is the mineral they're all frantically digging for in The Devil in the Dark, way back in, you know, the original series. I actually really quickly reviewed that episode, so I 
we could get the pronunciation right. So yeah, Pregium um, is kind of the, the what's kicking this all off. I, I remember in the acknowledgements, you mentioned this is a novel that you've wanted to write for some time. So this, uh, this has been kind of kicking around your ideas folder for a while, it seems. Yeah, it kind of percolating in the back of my head. That's the way it works on this. You go, what's the next book going to be? Or maybe you get distracted or, you know, another project comes up. But no, this is sort of, you know, well, um, the idea of, you know, I've got a whole folder of what I call my brainstorming files, that some of them are Star Trek ideas or just general ideas. And like I said, the last book was something, Captain Captain was something that the four of us put together and that was deliberately set up to be a 50th anniversary thing. I can't remember exactly when I came up with the Gold Rush Eye, but it's been on sort of my to-do list. And then once we got past Legacies and Pocket Books asked me for, well, what have you got next? Maybe it's time to finally pull out that Gold Rush idea and get around and get around to doing it. And my other goal for the book was this is a book I really wanted to do more of the supporting cast, and we'll get into this. But, you know, I'm always looking for stuff I haven't really explored. It. Gee, I've never really done – I've never really done much with Chekhov, so – one of my goals for this book was to have a big plot and to try to, while giving Kirk and Spock plenty to do, also find stuff for Scotty and your and Yura and Sulu and Chekhov to all give them prominent parts in the book. I wanted to use everybody in this book. Yeah, that's great. We really appreciate when authors do that because we do want to see more of those characters or have more screen time in a sense with those characters. And also, honestly, I can say, you know, Pocket Books wanted a somewhat longer book than usual. This is, that book, that book's like 100,000 words long. They wanted a big, big book, you know, so let's try to use everybody, you know. Yes. And the the structure of the story kind of lent itself to that because that's one of the things, and, and we'll get into the specific stories in a bit, but, you know, everybody, there, there's there's kind of a bunch of different stories going on and the crew's split up and there's really like a spotlight moment for just about all of the main cast, actually all of the main cast now that I think about it. That was very deliberate and that was one, like I said, you kind of go into the project with different goals. One was to do the gold rush idea finally. The other was, okay, this is the book where I really want to like get a lot of mileage out of the supporting cast. And that meant having an A plot and a B plot and a C plot, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And we will touch on that. But before we get to that, you know, the name of the book is The Antares Maelstrom. And that plays a big part, pun intended, in this book. So could you tell us about the Antares Maelstrom and your ideas behind that? Well, I, I'm sure I don't need to tell you where I got the idea for that name. That, of course, <laughs> the Antares Maelstrom is mentioned by Khan in The Wrath of Khan. He's got his whole big monologue when he's vowing vengeance on James T. Kirk. You know, I'll chase him around the Antares Maelstrom and the runes of Nivea, you know. And, runes. and I think I must have been watching the Wrath of Khan one night, as I do often. And so what is the Antares Maelstrom? And I remember going upstairs and has anyone ever dealt with this? And to my surprise, you know, looking it up on Memory Alpha and Memory Beta and discovering that, oh, no one had ever actually written a book or a comic book about the Antares Maelstrom, which Khan famously name checks. So it was sort of, oh, you know, oh well, again, these ideas kind of coalesce. You have the gold rush idea. Oh, well, what is the Antares Maelstrom? Oh, what can I do with Chekhov and Yura this time around? And it, it sort of pull these ideas together and, you know, hammer them into a plot, you know. But no, I, the Antares Maelstrom is the thing that 
Khan mentions in the movie and we never actually know what it is. It's kind of like Han Solo talking about the Kessel Run. What is the Kessel Run? Well, what is this Antares Maelstrom Khan was talking about? You know. It's actually funny that no one's used it before because it's a really compelling name, you know, like... Oh, I thought so. I was like, I was a little amazed to go, really? No one has used this as a title yet? My one concern was if I called it Antares Maelstrom, people would pick up the book expecting it to have something to do with Khan. And that that's not the case, you know. Yeah, because they would think, oh, maybe this has to do with Khan. Oh, it's written by Greg Cox. He likes to write about Khan. <laughs> right. In fact, I, in fact, I'll tell you a true editorial story. At one point, I began the book with an epigram quoting the line from Wrath of Khan. And somebody at CBS I think, wisely suggested I delete that because, you know, Greg, if you begin with a quote from Khan, people are going to think the book is about Khan. Hmm. And in fact, this book, in fact, takes place you know, 20, 15 years before Wrath of Khan. So, yeah, we didn't want to mislead people. So, uh, yeah, probably don't want to be- hammer the Khan connection too heavily because exactly because of my bibliography. And so, yeah, we, we, I, I just sort of count on Star Trek fans to recognize the name and go, ooh, what is, what's the Antares Maelstrom? Plus, it's such a great name, you know. Now I have to write a book called The Moons of Nibia. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> that would be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Those sound like great Star Trek titles. <laughs> yeah. Book two, The Moons of Nibia, you know. Oh, man. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, as I mentioned before, this is like an old-fashioned Western, and there's all these brawls that are happening on the station, and, and people are fighting for territory on the planet, and, and Kirk and, their, and the crew are trying to help out the jackpot city. There's the mayor there, Marjorie Poho, and, and the Deep Space Station uh, S8 station manager, George Tilton. And uh, there's the head of security, Max Grandel. So I was wondering if you could tell us about the this these locations and the mayor and the station manager and just, you know, about these characters in the situation. Well, the space station is very clearly modeled on the one we saw in The Trouble of Triples. Mm-hmm. Um, I had all my diagrams of that space station out when I was working on the book. I, I can't remember exactly the name of the one in Trouble of Tribbles, but if there's a deep space station, you know, whatever it was, there's presumably other deep space sta- stations out there. And, you know, it's set up the same way on Trouble of Tribbles. There, there was a supervisor and Mr. So-and-so who ran the place. And I mean, it made sense that, again, again, I was reading up on the gold rushes and gold rushes of the past that, yeah, you would have these isolated way stations that are suddenly used to have, you know, Five or six ships come by in a year, suddenly they're in the middle of a major exodus and they're overwhelmed. And that's also what happens with Jackpot City, which was this remote little logging community. And now suddenly overnight, it's this big boomtown. And yeah, I was reading up about Alaskan boomtowns. And one of the things I read was occasionally you had ships would arrive there and the ships would get turned into floating store, you know, bars and brothels and whatnot. So, oh, maybe some of the spaceships touched down and then some of the buildings are just abandoned spaceships that have been converted into general stores and dormitories and whatnot for all the, you know, prospectors who are descending on force on the town. And the other thing I wanted to get into is there was a conflict between the people who were just minding their own business, the native people on the small remote town who suddenly find themselves outnumbered by all these newcomers. So there's conflict between, you know, the nativists and the, you know, whatever happened to our nice little small town. And suddenly we're outnumbered by all these prospectors from all over the galaxy. And one thing I was having fun, I was trying to use 
pretty much every TOS centric race I could think of to show up. You know, if you, I was looking through my guidelines of, you know, there's the aliens from the cloud minders are there and there's Andorians and there's Tellarites and, you know, I had, I actually made up like a two page list of all the aliens who conceivably could be showing up, um, who are spacefaring civilizations who could be showing up to take part in this group that weren't, you know, established later on in, you know, TNG or whatever. I had like a two page list of 23rd century aliens. I even went back and watched Enterprise because if you're, any aliens who appeared in Enterprise were fair game to appear in this book, you know, so like the Nausicans and everything and Argelians and, you know, the folks from the way to Eden. So I was, you know, but I wanted this whole hodgepodge of like everybody from all over the Alpha Quadrant sort of descending on this one hitherto obscure little, ta- little you know, frontier planet. Even the little gold guys from Journey to Babel, <laughs> which was a nice thing. I, I think they show up at some point. Yes, I think one of them gets tossed across the room. I think at one point, okay, yep. during a barroom brawl or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was actually watching Journey to Babel just like two nights ago, uh, so I know exactly who you're talking about. So. <laughs> I even tried to use some of the more obscure aliens who popped up in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, mm. you know, and were never oh, seen wow. again, you know. But as partly just just for fun, but also just to sort of get a sense that you know. There's this wild, you know, chaotic situation with all these different clashing alien races all showing up, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the things uh, you mentioned that I really enjoyed about the book, actually, was the the kind of tension between the uh, newcomers and the old guard there uh, with, you know, people who have lived there probably to get away from the Federation and, and live a quiet life. And then, you know, we get the, the Federation having to come in and help out and, you know, the Federation tax man kind of looming over the planet a little bit. I thought that was a really interesting kind of uh, tension in the book. Yeah, that just kind of developed. I'm not even sure if that was all that's something I stretched, I stressed too much in like my original outline. But it made sense that you would have the people who kind of like things, you know, there were people who were going to be jumping on the, the whole boomtown wagon, and there's other people who were, well, no, we, we had our small little town here, and, you know. And honestly, I've lived in big cities and small towns, and I've seen some of this dynamic, and there is sometimes in small towns you get conflict between, you know, the folks who were born and raised here three generations and, you know, the suburbanites moving in and changing everything or whatever, you know. Um, so I was trying to get some of the, you know, rural city divide kind of stuff without being too heavy-handed about it, you know. But yeah, it made sense that that some people would be would embrace. Oh my, hey, we're new and prosperous, and look, our tiny little town is booming. And but we liked it better when we were a quiet little. And 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 the Federation left us alone, and no one else cared about us. You know, uh, you know, and and there is this tension about the Federation coming in and taking over. You know, uh, and throwing their weight around. You know, yeah, because this isn't a Federation planet, but but that deep space station S eight though is a Federation space station, right? Right. It, it, it's not run by Starfleet necessarily. It's run by the Federation because it seemed to be a civilian operation, you know. And like I said, my model was the one in Trouble with Tribbles, which was seen to be open to the general public because we see the Klingons were docking there too and also using it for shore leave. So yeah, it wasn't so much a Starfleet station as it was sort of a independent, it was sort of run by the Federation, but Again, I think I compare it to a sort of small roadside end that suddenly finds itself next to a superhighway, you know. Yes. It definitely felt that way. Because at the beginning of the book, it's, you know, yeah, it's a small town. Then all of a sudden, they're just being invaded. And, and then, yeah, and you definitely describe 
the space station, like the one Trouble Tribbles, because I could totally visualize it when you're saying about, you know, the arms protruding out and all that stuff. I was like, oh, I know what that looks like. <laughs> and by the way, when you mentioned it from Trouble Tribbles and you said, and you didn't remember the name of the station, I could tell Dan was like biting his tongue <laughs> to yell okay, out Dan, what the name, what of, the the name station. of the station. Deep Space K7 was the name. But uh, the, the one thing that I noticed was you even mentioned the diamond shaped door <laughs> to the, like, yes. I was like, ah. Yeah, I'm just picturing those sets in my head this whole time. That was perfect. Well, I figured it was like your standard issue, Deep Space Station. I mean, and, you know, why go nuts re-visualizing the thing when I can just watch Trouble with Tribbles, you know? <laughs> and I was dragging out my old technical manuals and looking at you know, the diagrams and everything, you know? Yeah, that's great. And then the thing also, like, then as we move on about then these characters, as you're saying, some of the minor characters had bigger roles like Sulu. And uh, this is almost like a, a Sulu story. I mean, he, he doesn't carry the whole story, but he's definitely a prominent character in this. And I really enjoyed that aspect of him because now he's basically in control of a certain aspect of this mission and uh he runs into an old acquaintance of his name helena and i kept trying to figure out i was like have we met her before but i don't think we have have we no i made her up i was basically i the, the assumption there is I mean, you know for god's sakes you know everywhere kirk goes he runs into some old flame you know <laughs> we, we've seen this in the deadly years we've seen this in a number of you know i think it was about time for Sulu to be on a mission and run into an old flame. He surely has one too, you know. It's pretty funny because my wife and my two daughters are kind of, they're not big Star Trek fans, but they're familiar with it and they've seen some of the movies and such with me. And uh, I was telling them about this book and my wife says, no, Sulu can't have a girlfriend. He's gay. <laughs> and my oldest daughter, I was so proud of her. She goes, no, that's just the Kelvin timeline. I was like, yes. <laughs> you are raising her right. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so I kind of want to talk about that relationship and, and Sulu's role in this book, but I think we're going to start hitting on some spoilers at this point. So it's all fair game from here on out. Okay. Yeah, I will tell you one funny story quickly. At okay. one point in an early, these books evolve. At one point in an early stage of the book, that was going to be Chekhov's plot line. Hmm. And at one point I was flirting with the idea of setting it in the movie era. You know, but then after some discussion, we ended up deciding to make it in the five-year mission, at which point it no longer made sense that Chekhov, the green young kid, would be put in charge of the space station. So, yeah, Sulu ended up stealing Chekhov's plot line. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, that makes sense because it's in the five-year mission. Sulu probably should have more of that role. It made more sense to check, you know, Sulu, who was, you know, and actually, I think in retrospect, since Sulu is all up, ends up becoming captain of the Excelsior, showing him taking command of a space station made more sense, you know. But yeah, there, there, there's an early outline of, version of this in which, it, in which that plot line began along to Sulu, to Chekhov. Well, and Chekhov gets some love in here, so it's not like he's abandoned. <laughs> no, Chekhov got his, own, got his own plot line later, yeah, yeah which we can talk yeah. about, yeah. Yeah. But now Sulu's, um, we kind of have this, this mystery going on in the space station. Uh, all these things are happening. I remember there's like a bomb or something that blows up in the ceiling. And, and so it's almost like a murder mystery, even though it's not really a murder. But we get, well, I don't want to get too far into it, but 
tell us about that whole storyline of Sulu's that leads to some brainwashing activity that's been going on. Well, you're right. There's a whole detective that 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 part of the book is, is a detective story. Um, Sulu has been sort of put in charge, more or less, of security on the station, and then there's this series of mysterious accidents and sabotage going on, and who is the saboteur? And like any good mystery, I threw in some red herrings and other suspects. And eventually, yes, Sulu figures out who is behind the sabotage and the ac- the accidents that keep occurring all over the station. And I don't know how spoiler you want me to get, but eventually the solution ties in with another old, with a gimmick I lifted from another old classic TOS episode. That's one thing I noticed with this novel is there are a lot of callbacks to other episodes. And I think that's something I really appreciate as a Star Trek fan reading these books. So, um, you know, we warning to everyone listening, we are in the in the spoiler part of the show. So. I think we can we can say that it relates back to Dagger of the Mind and uh, Dr. Tristan Adams and his whole invention there. Um, the neural neutralizer. Indeed, the, the alliterative, uh, horrible machine of <laughs> Dr. Adams. And uh, I, I really like that, uh, just these little touchstones that, um, you know, and, and the history we get for this machine too, the fact that, you know, of course the original was dismantled, but you know, the plans have made it to the black market and that sort of thing. I think it really kind of fleshes out this universe and makes it feel like a real evolving place. Uh, more so obviously than like an episodic show in the sixties could. Yeah. There's a lot of like cool gadgets and plot things that are because TOS was an episodic 1960s show, which are mentioned once and never mentioned again. And indeed, one of the things I kind of like to do is seize on this stuff and, well, okay, well, what did ever happen to the neural neutralizer? And did I ever get, you know, and, you know, because like I said, you know, TOS is full of amazing discoveries that are never heard of again and amazing gadgets. And, and I mean, I, I, I'm continuity porn guy. I will <laughs> seldom miss a chance to do a reference to a, you know, old episode. And in this case, when I was plotting the murder mystery or the detective story aspect of the whole space station plot line, I always kind of want to, you know, a come up with a solution that's kind of sci-fi. And if I can do it, you know, a solution that's singularly Star Trek. So it's not just a saboteur, it's a saboteur. And, oh, he's using a gadget from a classic TOS episode. So this is not just a plot of a you know, random saboteur plot. He bombs. There's, there's a specially uniquely Star Trek aspect to the solution of the mystery, which is something I have done before in other books as well. And yes, I've got a list in my brainstorming file of a few other gadgets I want to play with someday, you know. Because sometimes, honestly, at this point, I watch old Star Trek episodes. And it's like, oh, Antares Maelstrom. What is the Antares Maelstrom, you know? Sometimes when I'm stuck for ideas, I'll just, you know, sit down and binge watch TOS and, you know, <laughs> ideas will come into my head. You know, it's just amazing when you consider the the many novels that have been published and uh, just even the spinoff series and things and, and the comics and such. And you can still find aspects in the classic Star Trek series to build stories off of there's there's times that I've watched stuff and I'm like, Oh, that would be a great story. I'm surprised no one has done anything with that. And I mean, there's, it's still ripe for opportunities. 
And it's funny, I mean, at times I thought, okay, the original 79 episodes, surely we have mined them enough now after 700 novels. There, there, there's <laughs> right. no more episodes left to mine. And yet, like I said, there's stuff around the fringes, you know, even if you aren't actually doing a sequel to Dagger of the Mind and, you know, bringing back Tristan Abbott and Helen Noel, oh, well, what about this interesting device we saw that was never used again, you know? Um, I was watching Wolf in the Fold the other day, and they were talking about the psycho tricorder that could record someone's <laughs> memories. And I'm like, gee, that might be a fun thing to use in a Star Trek novel some days. I have no immediate plans, but that might be a fun thing to use in a Star Trek novel. What, if, what about that psycho tricorder, you know? Yeah, yeah. Seems like something that would have come in handy in any number of other episodes of the spinoffs, too. But for some reason... <laughs> Well, that, yes. that's the thing. Sometimes they, there's a reason they forget this stuff. Um, <laughs> Wolf on the Fold is a bit of a problem in, in applying that you can, oh, you know, they've got this absolutely foolproof lie detector thing and this absolutely foolproof memory scan, which pretty much makes murder mysteries impossible. In Star Trek. I'm not surprised they kind of <laughs> quietly swept it under the rug, but, you know. But at least you pulled out the neutralizer, which is great. So, so Nalus is this guy that's using this neutralizer. I don't recall how did he get this. He didn't get it on eBay or anything, right? Well, he's he's a shady. He's kind of a shady quark type character who's got his fingers in all sorts of pies and has all sorts of. Yeah, you know, I introduced him early on as the guy who can get you anything for the right price, and he sort of lies. Oh, anything legal? Uh huh. Right. You know. So, right. and apparently there are shadier areas of, you know, the galaxy where you can get your hands on, you know, illicit materials. And again, the sort of the foreshadowing is I do set up early, early on that Nihilus is this kind of shady character who, you know, can get his hands on anything for the right price. So if anyone was going to be able to get their hands on a black market neural neutralizer picked up from, I can't even remember the name of the planet, but I invent some shady planet where, you know, you know, Orion marketing deals go on, you know, um, it would be Nalus. Nalus is his species. Uh, he's, he's one of the blue skin guys from Atlanta Troyes. Mm -hmm. If you remember the, like, uh, like Ambassador Petri, uh, the guy that... Yeah, he, he's of the same species. Oh. Thank you. Very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm having my senior moments here tonight. But, That's you know, why he's we keep Alasian. Alasian. You know, he is of the same species as, you know... Again, that's me. You know, why invent a new alien when I can grab a classic alien, you know, who's sort of colorful and interesting looking. So, yeah, he's the same species. Um, it has sort of the, some of the same mannerisms. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think I established that he's kind of an expatriate who has fallen out of favor with the royal family back on Alasia, you know. Yeah, there's something about shady characters in space stations for some reason. <laughs> or anything. This is sort of, I'm, I'm watching this TV show now about digressing called The Outpost, which is a fantasy show. And yes, there's a shady woman who runs a bar and she's got her fingers in all sorts of illicit deals and smuggling and everything, you know. You know this is sort of endemic to frontier settings, I think, you know. And again, like I said, I'm doing, to a certain degree, I'm really milking the final frontier aspect here and playing up the Western elements. So, yeah, there's going to be a, he runs a general store and he's sort of involved in smuggling and whatnot. So. And speaking of Western elements, like Yohora and her dancing and singing at that club or whatever, remind me of something you'd see in a Western. Oh, very much. That's like the local dance hall. I'm not sure if I actually use the word dance hall, but it's the local bar dance hall place, you know. Yeah, gambling. I think there's gambling going on in the upper 
upper upper stories, you know. Because mm. again, it's a it's it's a it's a rough and tumble, you know, uh, gold rush, you know, uh, mining town, you know. And you got all these miners. The the ones who are striking it rich have got money, you know, have got pergium burning holes in their pockets, as it were, you know. And they need to spend it on drinks and entertainment and uh, gambling in the upper stores and. And there's entertainment and there's talent shows and open mic contests, you know. I thought that was a neat little uh, conceit that like the, the serving staff had little mini assay devices and people were just bringing the raw ore right in to pay for their drinks and stuff. I thought that was kind of cool. And, you know, I can't remember exactly because you have to remember there's a time delay. I wrote this book about a year ago. But yeah, I think that was actually, again, something I lifted from a real book that occasionally, you know, prospectors, 49ers would wander into the saloon, you know, a little bag of gold dust and spring, you know, before they'd had a conversion, it would pay, pay with a, you know, handful of gold dust or something, you know. And but yeah, I like the idea that the waitresses all had little portable assay devices, you know, because of course, even though I'm moving Western, you got you to gotta throw in the futuristic elements because this is the 23rd century. <laughs> You don't want to have them panning for gold. They got to be, you know, mining with phaser beams and things. <laughs> right. <laughs> It'd be ridiculous to have them using pickaxes or something when they've got phasers. <laughs> well, speaking of, um, you know, frontier locales and that sort of thing, we we alluded to this briefly, but we have also got Spock and Chekhov on a mission uh, to a neighboring planet of Uranus. And there's been some kind of uh, evidence that there's been violations of, of the prime directive with this, uh, you know, people trading for this tea that uh, serves kind of the the same function that Triox compound, which is a little more rare, serves. And uh, that's kind of affecting the culture. Um, I was wondering about the kind of... Um, inspiration for this caper I, I really enjoyed this part of the book and i thought it was really cool to pair spock and Chekhov and kind of get that mentor protege relationship that we saw hints of in the original series well exactly you you you, you zero right in on it that's simply you know um i think the inspiration for like i said amazing how many of my ideas come from just me sitting around and binge watching tos <laughs> there's there's an episode in the in who mourns for adonis where I think McCoy complains about, you know, you know, Spock is, you know, rubbing off on this kid, you know, and there was this sort of this hint that, you know, at least early on in you know, the second season or so that Chekhov was kind of sort of Spock's, you know, protege or mentor or some, you know, I was talking, I was watching the episode the other night that when Spock is otherwise detained, you've got Chekhov working the science station and looking into Spock's monitor and everything. So yeah, there was. I, I, I like the idea of pairing up, probably because I was looking for something to do with Chekhov. Because, like I said, Sulu stole his plotline. But the idea of pairing Spock up with Chekhov seemed like a, a cool idea. That was something the show kind of hinted at, but never really did. And yeah, writing the book, I had a lot of fun. They 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 actually make a fun team: the sort of young, rash, impetuous Russian, and the older, you know, more stoic, you know. Vulcan, they 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 were actually a fun sort of you know Holmes and Watson team to write, you know. But yeah, I I got the idea from the idea that you know there was this sort of you know connection between Spock and Chekhov, and they would be a fun pair to send off an adventure together. And I like the I'm just going to call them almost like the villains of this storyline <laughs> that they're dealing with here, and uh, I could just vision when they were at the dock and that ship comes out of the water and all the shenanigans going on. It felt 
that again feels very rustic. You know, it, 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 it feels like something that I can really relate to, um, as something real. It didn't seem like foreign or something. It just seemed like something you would see in a story of our past of like the Westerns or something to that effect. Well, on your notes, the idea I had more or less was we were kind of talking colonial era. I was kind of, you know, the technology was roughly 17th century. So I was actually thinking like lots of stories like about smugglers along the coast and everything and um, the scarecrow of Romney Marsh, if that means anything to you. And so, yeah, there's sort of, you know, it's seaside town and you've got the governor's tax agents. I was sort of thinking old stories like, you know. The, the culture they've got they've got horse drawn carriages and everything, and so rather than, a lot of times when we see other cultures they're either like Stone Age or they're advanced. I thought okay, well, this is kind of like roughly colonial America, seventeenth century England kind of setting, you know, with smugglers along the coast and all that. Yeah, I kind of got that impression, uh, especially during the chase scene. Uh, we get the uh, the. Um, the local constabulary, I guess, uh, saying, you know, stop in the name of the governor and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden my brain put them in, you know, like 17th century waistcoats and, and all this stuff and, uh, handheld, uh, flintlock pistols and stuff. It was, is a cool you, image. You, you don't want to be too literal. It's always sort of, a, you know, oh, well, they're all wearing red coats or something. <laughs> but yeah, that was sort of the level of technology and the kind of society I was aiming for, you know. Mm. Which again seemed a little different because we, you know, sometimes if you see these small agrarian peasant villages or something, well, no, this is this is kind of a thriving 17th century seaport kind of culture here, and it's and there's a local governor and there's tax agents and there's bootleggers and you know smugglers, you know, it, it seemed like a fun setting, you know, and different. Like I said, I was sort of going trying to get for a different vibe. Uh, you know, Balder Three is Alaskan gold rush. Yurnos is, this is how it works in my brain, is kind of, you know, 17th century smugglers and, you know, the king's men and kind of thing. And the fact that they're uh, riding around on, you know, large uh, rodents like marmots, <laughs> I think was a really cool image that just on an aesthetic level, I really appreciated. Well, good. I got to admit, that, you know, you know, even after writing these books for 25 years, you always kind of have these authorly insecurities. I'm like, is this too silly? They're riding around <laughs> on giant squirrels. Is this too silly? Yeah. No, go for it. Yeah, you know, it's, this, is, this is fun and colorful, you know. I don't remember. Uh, was it Aoife? Uh, I think it was her name. Yes. Uh, is, I, I love the part where, you know, because Spock is trying to conceal, of course, his ears and so they don't figure out that he's Vulcan. But I love it where she's asking him to sign something, you know, to tr in order as a sign of trust. And she's like, you know, you have to sign in blood. I mean, come on. And of course it's like, Oh no, how Spock is, <laughs> how's he going to get out of this? Cause it's going to be green blood. And I thought, well, maybe he'll just go for it. But I love how he's just like, Oh, well I, you know, I don't want to get any kind of whatever, like infections or whatever. And he tries to pass it off to check off. She's like, I can't trust you if you're not going to do it. And you're passing it off to your buddy. If you're not here. willing to sign in blood. How am I supposed to trust you? Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and I just, and that's kind of the play of their scenes. There's always little fun things like that in there. It's like, okay, how, how are they going to get around this? How are they, 
going to get out of that? And then, of course, it is revealed that he's Vulcan. And, you know, she's even starts calling him Vulcan and she's like, and, and Starfleet or whatever that is. <laughs> well, no, she doesn't actually know what a Vulcan is. It's the other smugglers from off world to start calling him Vulcan. She's actually puzzled. She does not know what right. he is. Mm-hmm. You know? She's just repeating what she heard them say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because she she she's she's got an arrangement going on with some off-worlders who were violating the prime directive. I also enjoyed uh, just the kind of interplay between Spock and Chekhov a little bit because you know Chekhov's kind of got his personality quirks, and uh, you know even the fact that he attributes everything great in the world to Russia <laughs> gets no reaction from his audience, and Spock's like, uh, "Check, Mister Chekhov." thinks that that sort of thing is funny or something like that. <laughs> it's just, right. I was cracking up reading it or something, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you just feel Spock's eyes rolling. <laughs> Here we go again. Well, like I said, sometimes you, know, you discover stuff as you're writing books. And one of the things I discovered writing that book was, Oh, Spock and Chekhov together are a lot of fun. I actually ended up, you know, having more fun with the whole Chekhov um, Spock team up, you know, storyline than I expected, you know, and ended up sort of fleshing it out and, you know, writing the banter between them was a lot of fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Which is something you see hints of on the original series, but I don't think there's, there is an episode where there's the two of them off on an adventure together, you know. Well, we do get like a team up in a sense with Kirk and Scotty back on, uh, on Boulder yeah. three and they're at Jackpot city and we've got the Thunderbird there, this old ship that's being used as a power plant. And because we have all these prospectors here, the power's really being overtaxed and, and this old ship can't keep it going anymore. It's getting overloaded and Scotty's there trying to fix it. But even before that, we've got Kirk creating like, you know, breaking a dam and water coming through. <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot of fun moments in there like but, this. Yeah, you know, like I said, I, I, I always have you fun with this book, you know. Um, yeah, carriage chases drawn by giant rodents, uh, prospectors, old decrepit spaceships, um, you're uh, winning the talent contest down to the dance hall, you know. Um, so what, what, why the decision to use a ship to power the city and then it overloading and they have to take it out into space and blow it up. I think, like I said, just sort of part of it, just sort of vaguely this sort of sense of, you know, reading about old Alaskan boomtowns where they were kind of like refurbishing things and everything was kind of thrown together. And, you know, how are they coping with all this? Stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, I started thinking about the infrastructure is going to be stressed and where are they getting all this energy. And the fact that it's all kind of slapdash and enough to, you know, give, Scotty and Ulcer just looking at it, you know, no, 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 no. I can't remember exactly what the idea of using an old ship and having it converted into a power plant, but I do remember reading about old ships being turned into gambling houses and brothels and things. And well, this is a Star Trek novel, so it's not going to be a brothel. It's going to be a power plant, you know. (laughs) And then again, gave Scotty a whole big, you know, tech-oriented, oh my God, there's going to be a meltdown, you know, Three Mile Island kind of situation going on. Well, towards the end of this novel, we've got like all of these plot lines we've been talking to coming to a head, and then over uh, on the on Sulu's side of it, uh, because he had to use a ship to uh, that was guarding the Antares Maelstrom in pursuit of another vessel. The Lucky Strike decides to make a run across the Antares Maelstrom, and we really get the namesake kind of uh, coming into play here. 
Captain Dajo, who's this kind of, uh, you know, bit of a slimy character. And I kind of get annoyed at uh, Helena just constantly defending him because I don't think he's that great a guy. Uh, there's this whole adventure across the maelstrom along with a number of really interesting life forms that come into the final act here. What was kind of the inspiration for this bit of the story and uh, especially the glider life forms? I think that was a really cool part of the story. Um, well, part of the idea was honestly, I was kind of thinking about the Donner party. Hmm. Um, there's no cannibalism in this book, just to be clear. <laughs> no one eats anybody in this book. But, you know, again, you, that, the, the Donner party got into trouble because they were trying to take a shortcut. And again, the Western expansion, everybody rushing out to California. I'm not sure that was a gold rush, but again, the Donner party, you know, there, there's a safe way to go around the mountain. You know, the Donner party had this not reliable map that was supposedly a safe route through over the mountains and they got stuck. Well, in, in the book, there's this dangerous region of space, which nobody has ever successfully crossed. And most sensible people take the long way around the Antares Maelstrom, but because people are in a rush to get to Baldur three and stake their claim, people are, people are, are trying to dare the, um, Antares Maelstrom and this one particular strip ship, the Lucky Strike, takes advantage of Sulu being distracted by another adventure to decide that, hi, we're going to take it across the dangerous area and we're going to beat everybody else to Baldur Three and, you know, get all the prime territory. And this is not a good idea because, indeed, Captain Dejo, who, well, I, I was going for colorful rogue, but yes, sleazeball works too. Um, <laughs> you know, they, go into this dangerous area and there is the, um, and it turns out that in fact it is inhabited by these very dangerous life forms. And that's one of the reasons why no one has ever successfully crossed the Antares Maelstrom before. And Sulu has to run in and try to rescue them. And honestly, the gliders were actually a very late, I'll be honest here, in my original like 15 page outline I had, it was just, there's a dangerous life farm in the Antares Maelstrom. And it was rather late into the book where I kind of realized, oh, I have to figure out what these damn dangerous life forms are. I think I spent an afternoon down at the local coffee shop pulling out my hair before I came up with the idea of the gliders who were, I sort of visualized as looking as sort of like manta rays and they're sort of part matter, part energy, and they can kind of sublime back and forth between the two of them and they, they are dangerous and that, you know, and they don't like people, you know, coming into their territory. But yeah, the gliders very late into the development of the book were just, you know, there's a dangerous life form in the maelstrom and they have to deal with them. But eventually I came up with the gliders. Well, and this kind of leads to what I think of as a very Star Trek uh, story, of course, because, you know, they seem belligerent and, you know, may just be animals that are acting on instinct. But, you know, Sulu hits on the idea that maybe we can talk to them. And he happens to have the second best uh, communications person aboard the ship. And uh, they managed to talk to them. I thought that was a really definitely keeping in with the whole Star Trek uh, ethos. And yeah, and, and that Sulu comes out of that having part of it. He's had this experience of having dealt with Hortas and whatnot and knowing that sometimes the weird freaky alien, you know, is maybe somebody you can communicate with. And yeah, so you mentioned Helena, his, his, his ex-girl, his on again, off again, you know, friends with benefits, ex-girlfriend here. 
um, is the second greatest communication expert, you know, in the galaxy. The first, of course, being Aurora, you know. But I, I set that up earlier that she's 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 the communications officer on the Lucky Strike, you know. Yes, and thankfully, then the Enterprise comes in to rescue them as the ship is deteriorating in the maelstrom, and they live happily ever after. <laughs> and that's when the plots all start sort of converging there at the end. You know, you for a long time there's Sulu on his space station dealing with the saboteur. You've got. Spock and Chekhov over on Yurnos dealing with the, you know, prime directive infractions. And then you've got Kirk and the rest of the Enterprise crew trying to maintain law and order on, you know, the Gold Rush planet. And then at the very end, things start to converge. Yes. And they, the Enterprise has to go in and go into the, because you can't, at some point, the Enterprise has to go into the Antares Maelstrom because it's called the Antares Maelstrom, damn it. Okay, you know. <laughs> but, exactly. but that was the point where the plots started to converge you know well and i really like then I, this the way this book ended though really had me thinking because then um the planet balder three decides that they're going to join the federation because they realize the federation could help protect them just like the enterprise has been doing that whole time there but i thought this really opens the door to a whole nother situation because with such a popular mineral there i would think some other planets and like the klingons or whatever might have an issue with the fact that the enterprise is or, or i'm sorry the federation is, is now going to take over a planet where this valuable mineral is and it could create a whole nother situation and that's the case where i'll be honest again like i said these things go through evolutions in in the early stages of whacking out this plot, yeah, I did flirt with the idea of, okay, should I bring in the Klingons? The Klingons want this planet. Do the Romulans want this planet? And that just seemed like one level of complexity too many. Right. Um, plus, there's any number of episodes where the Klingons in and the Federation are competing over some planet because it's got, you know, a good deal of dilithium or something. I kind of felt that that ground had been covered. But yeah. I think at one point I did have the vague idea that the Enterprise was set in partly to maintain law and order and also to discourage the Klingons and Romulans from getting greedy, but I'm not sure that actually made it into the finished book because it's just, I had a, as noted, there's a lot of plot lines going on and maybe, oh, do I want to bring in the Klingons too? No, that's maybe one plot line too many, you know. Yeah, and sometimes we get too many Klingons in these <laughs> stories, so it's nice that they're not there. <laughs> but yeah, right. I, it's, I guess I just sort of assumed that they, this was way from their territory, you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. They don't even know this is going on. They they probably don't even know about the planet at all. Yeah, it, no, the planet is, is is independent, but it's sort of out on the fringes of Federation territory, you know. And, and like I said, the the space station is basically run by the Federation, you know. Um, even though, as we, as we saw in Trouble of Triples, this doesn't mean that the Klingons can't drop by and use the facilities occasionally. There's some sort of, you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot of discussion in the book about jurisdiction and who has authority here and where, you know, both on the space station and also on the various different planets and who's in charge here and, you know, and the lines of authority get a little blurry. Um, Sulu butts heads a little bit with the security chief, the regular security chief on the space station, you know, who's not entirely happy about, you know, these other people being, you know, 
Starfleet, again, Starfleet is trying to be very helpful, but has to avoid the perception that they're kind of coming in and throwing their weight around, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And there is some pushback both on, you know, the jackpot planet, but, and also as well as on the space station of, okay, now the Federation are coming in and they're, they're, they're you know, Sulu has to walk kind of, you know, gently at the space station to avoid stepping on the toes and egos of the people of the regular staff. You know, I, I, I'm here to help, you know, I'm not here to, you know, tell you guys how to do your jobs. But by the way, I'm going to tell you how to do your jobs now. Okay. You know. And of course the, the villain of that part of the story is able to kind of play on those fears a little bit with, uh, with the neural neutralizer and, and turn that security right. chief against Sulu a little more easily that way. There's already some suspi- a lot of suspicion and hostility and people not trusting each other. So, and again, this being that part of the book being kind of a detective story, I wanted to throw in a fair, at least a decent, you know, a decent number of red herrings and suspects. Is it Captain Dejo, who, as you mentioned, is a sleazeball? <laughs> you know, well, what about Helena, who's you know, who who's uh, you know who is not shady, but she's not as you know straight and narrow as say Starfleet, you know. And you've got Nalus, the shady Quark character. You've got Mister Tilton. You've got Max Grandel, the security chief, who keeps bumping you know, horns with, uh, Sulu. So you, you need to have enough suspects to have a decent detective story. <laughs> yes. You had me, you had me wondering and guessing for sure. Yeah. It, it's kind of like Star Trek clue. You know, it, it's Nalus in the stock room with the neural neutralizer. That turns out to be the solution. Yes. But before <laughs> that there's okay. Who planted the bomb in the hangar bay and who sabotaged the gravity controls on that other ship. And, and at one point, remember, you know, like I said, Captain Dejo is a slime ball. He's, he's everybody's number one prime suspect for a while, you know. Well, I can just say that I really enjoyed this book. It feels like a Star Trek episode, but more than that, because there's a lot of plot lines going on. But it definitely feels like the original series. Well, I'm still laughing. There haven't been a whole lot of reviews yet, but someone posted a review on Goodreads that described it as a satisfying, if overstuffed turkey dinner of a Star Trek novel. <laughs> and you know what? I can live with that. <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, who doesn't, who like, doesn't turkey like a dinners? turkey dinner? You know? Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. that, that. It's better than you know, a plate of still leftovers, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely enjoyed this one as well. And uh, I, th- I think my favorite aspect is just the fact that every character gets at least a, a nice spotlight, uh, literally in the case of Uhura, you know, on, singing there uh so you know just nice to uh really get in an ensemble for this cast here well like i said that going in you sort of go in with project well what am i going to do in this star trek book you know as opposed to the last one well one of my goals was this was going to be a really ensemble book some books are you know kirk centric or spock centric i i really wanted to do something with all the crew, crew members in this book and that was sort of you know job one going in here you know yeah, and it's we didn't really touch all that much on Kirk or even anything on McCoy, but they, I mean, they all have roles in here. I think we're just, you know, really focusing on the more secondary, I guess you could say, crew members because we don't always get a lot of play on them. So it was just nice to see them having such big, juicy roles in this. If, if anything, just to be honest, I think if anything, McCoy is probably the only one who gets slightly. McCoy is in there; he's doing stuff, but yeah, you know, right. It's probably less McCoy-centric than, you know, other books might be, you know. 
Well, uh, that being said, uh, do you have any other things coming out that you're working on that you want to let our listeners know about? Well, um, I should mention that I actually had a book come out in February, and um, that was Batman, The Court of Owls, which was a Batman novel I wrote. And that came out in hardcover in February, and I believe like the paperback edition is coming out. You'd think I would know the hub date, and I don't, but, you know, probably in the, you know, in the fall or something. I also just recently discovered that an X-Men trilogy I wrote back in the 90s is being reissued um, next year. Well, that's kind of cool. I never thought those books were going to see the light of day again so because they, they, they had their time and they came and went. But that was back during the Clinton administration. So I was surprised <laughs> to find out they're being reissued, you know. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So, but no, like I said, at the moment, you know, the new book, which came out this week, is Antares Maelstrom. And I have some other projects, you know, that are in development, but nothing I can talk about right now. Oh, come on. You can give us a hint. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. The publishers like to, like, like to make a big splash and announce them publicly and everything, you know. But no, I, I'm not sitting home. I, I finished writing Antares Maelstrom, like, you know, last year. And I have not been sitting home, you know, uh, twiddling my thumbs ever since, you know, so... <laughs> right. Well, that's good. Excellent. That's good. We're glad to hear you're doing more. And I'm definitely going to let my daughter know about the Batman book you did because she's a huge Batman fan. So good. Yeah. In fact, hey, you know, if, if you want, we got a second here. Hang on. I, I, you know, I actually don't know when it's I was going to look it up on Amazon, but I, I suspect the paperback edition of that book will be coming out probably sometime this fall or maybe early next year. It came out in February, you know, a few months ago. And that was a fun book, too, and that was actually, that's full of lots of historical stuff that I sort of, you know, I've got very, I've been having a lot of fun with history lately, and I had a lot of fun digging into the history of Gotham City. Ooh. Okay, now I'm even more interested. Yeah. <laughs> that definitely sounds great. A good chunk of the book takes place 100 years ago in basically Gilded Age Gotham City. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. Awesome. Oh, man. I'm surprised we were, Oh, I wish we were doing literary Batman or something. Okay. <laughs> that, that'll be another time, <laughs> but maybe we'll see. But uh, if anybody wants to find you online, where can they find you? Oh, I have a website. I'm very easy to find. Just Google me. Um, I am not the politician in San Diego. I am not the restaurant reviewer. But you just Google Greg Cox. I'm one of the first hits that comes up, and you can go to my webpage. And I've got my email address on our webpage. I, I, I'm a little bit slow here. I have not yet joined the Twitter revolution. I, I don't have a huge social media presence because I'm old, but, you know, I'm getting there. So Yeah, I looked for you on Twitter the other day, and I saw people talking about you, but they weren't using it. I, I need to, you know, get on the, the whole, join the whole Twitter thing. But no, I have a website, which I try to keep more or less updated, and that's actually the best way to contact me because I've, I've got my email address there. You know, you're you're just fine staying off of Twitter, believe me. Yeah. Sometimes it can get a little rough. <laughs> Maybe the best advice. <laughs> hey, it, it is the wave of the future here, so. It is, it is. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. I'm sorry it's been a while since you've been on, but, uh, I'm, you know, if if some of these other new things you're working on is Star Trek related, we'll definitely have you back. Definitely, yeah. Well, I've been writing Star Trek books for 25 years now, so I suspect there will be more Star Trek in my future. It's amazing to realize I actually wrote my first Star Trek book during the first season of Deep Space Nine. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So that was some time ago. Yeah, that was. That's that's about as long as I've been reading Star Trek books. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, so yeah, that no, in fact, I started writing that book before Deep Space Nine debuted. That's how I can sort of date it. Wow. So yeah, I you know, like I said, there's nothing I can you know, I I would not at all be surprised. I have no intention. There will be hopefully more Star Trek in my future. It's always fun, like we usually say, to have the authors on the show. But I got to say, it was a little hard to get Greg Cox on the show this week. I mean, I had to chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I gave him up. (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted to do that. (laughs) (laughs) You've seen the Wrath of Khan, obviously, more than once. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I have seen it a few times. A few times, yes. (laughs) I'm going to guess, too, that you bought the Blu-ray that came out like a year or two ago. Absolutely. Like, yep. I got yeah. that too. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I have it on VHS and DVD and everything else. Well, know. this was the director's edition, you see. <laughs> yes, it was. It is. Yes. I enjoyed that. So, well, it's been fun talking about the moons of Nibia, but this isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So, here's a quick look at some of the other things you may find elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. Is this the supernatural Klingon episode? What is this going to be? And then it just turns out to go in, you know, go in and you know, dig your own time crystals, State Park. I mean, it's like, okay. I Well, Larry, again, you know, he, you, he you, you go it. in there and you there's a like a, a basket type thing there and you, you put in your 10 quat lose and you mm-hmm. get 60 minutes to dig your time crystal. Darsex. Darsex. Yeah. Yeah, actually, the Klingons want Darsex, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go in, and actually, however many time crystals you can dig in 60 minutes, you get to keep. But the catch is, they're time crystals. So 60 minutes to one person <laughs> is only a minute to someone else. That- Literary Treks. Uh, we have the conversation between Pike and the, uh, the Star- Starfleet Admiral Terrell uh, about the specifics of why they were kept out of the war this is even before we're in a situation where they have no choice but to stay out of the war. They couldn't go back if they wanted to. By, you know, sort of setting up the, the, the milestones in the story for this is about when this is happening during season one, uh, you know, that allows us to tell our own independent story within that. But yet also you'll always know where you are in the regular TV show. Earl Grey. That question about whether life exists Either yes, it does, because like enough time has elapsed and there's enough planets out there, or no, it doesn't, because we are that race. Oh, <laughs> that seeds yeah. life elsewhere in the universe. At the some the point other in the answer is it did, but they all destroyed themselves. You know, but that's that's also kind of unlikely that you'd have lots of civilizations all doing the same thing and destroying themselves. I think, but to the journey. <laughs> That's all I could think about with that one. This is the Seinfeld in Space episode. I keep waiting for Elaine to show up. I'm trying to think of what Jerry Seinfeld would say in Jerry Seinfeld's tone of voice inside this episode. Can you do it? Can you do a good Jerry Seinfeld? Oh, good grief. No, not even close. I'm trying to think how I would approach doing a Jerry Seinfeld impersonation. It's not coming to me. (laughs) (laughs) He's got that super high pitched da 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 kind of, I don't know, kind of voice. Well, that you did really well, the da-da-da-da-da. So, yeah, there you go. Why don't they just warp out of here? (laughs) And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, we'd love it if you'd leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of our shows from Trek FM on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. And if you'd like to keep all the shows coming to you each week, you can do that. You can become a patron on the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm. And you'll get all the details of the perks, which include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, all through our website, Patron Zone. It takes a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. So we really appreciate it and Give us all the hope that you can to make this happen. So again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Podcasts are built on hope. Oh, sorry. Wrong franchise. No. Anyway, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. And we may read your comment or at least summarize it on an upcoming show. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the forum on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what is coming up for future shows. Plus, there's great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Matala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. So, Dan, when you're not on Balder 3 singing in a brothel, where can people find you? <laughs> well, you've got to get that old-timey guy on the piano, you know, playing some kind of vaudevillian-type music. Yeah. No, it's it's all good fun for sure. Uh, but when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, where I have a YouTube channel talking about Star Trek. Uh, where else? You can find me on Instagram. I'm Kurtrats47 on Instagram. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook.com slash Kurtrats Productions. Uh, you can probably find me sending smoke signals and waving semaphore flags. And of course, in the Babel conference, there's really no shortage of ways to get in touch with people nowadays. Now, Bruce, when you're not engaged in a high speed chase while riding a cart pulled behind giant marmots, where can we find you? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my horse impersonation hey you can find me on twitter at admiral underscore rex you can find me here on the network when a new episode of star trek discovery comes out do a live show with brandy jacola 
And uh, that is live from the edge the night after the premiere of the Discovery episode. And you can find me on the podcast Star Wars Report talking Star Wars. And you can also find me on an episode of the 602 Club that was out a few weeks ago about Thrawn Treason, that Star Wars novel we reviewed on there. And you can always find me in the Babo Conference. Yes. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.